Hello, and thank you for listening to our second episode of Ninth Seed. I'm your host, Moose Huerta, and today we're going to take a trip down memory lane. We're going to revisit the 1993-94 NBA season and that year in music. What I always loved about the NBA season is that the season straddles two calendar years, the fall of one year and the spring of another, identical to a school year. And in 93-94, I was a freshman in high school, and at the age of 14, I felt all the self-imposed pressure in the world to decide if I was going to be a surfer skateboarder or if I was going to be a jock and try out for the JV basketball team. But at the time, I was 5'6 and 100 pounds, soaking wet, and my build more or less made that decision for me. But despite giving up playing organized basketball, I grew up in North Florida during the Shaq Penny era, so I couldn't escape my love for the NBA. And at the time, another love I had was listening to music. Uh, The oversimplified, all-encompassing term of that era would have been alternative music. Now, the first time I went on the internet, I think, was my junior year in 1996. But pre-internet, there are two undeniable pop culture moments uh, that we now call viral moments that occurred during my adolescence. Zellers has Jordan. Jordan with two seconds to go, puts it up, and scores at the buzzer! Michael Jordan has won it for Chicago! Michael Jordan hit the basket at the buzzer! If you had a pulse in 1991, you'd heard of Michael Jordan. And even if you lived in a cave that was located in a cave, you'd heard this song. Nirvana released the single Smells Like Teen Spirit and their multi-platinum album Nevermind in September of 1991. But earlier that same year in June, Michael Jordan won his first of six championships with the Chicago Bulls. But as I said earlier, we're here to talk about the fall of 93 and the spring of 94. So in the fall of 93, the NBA and fans like myself were hit with this bombshell. The sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player uh, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball it's not because i don't love the game i love the game of basketball i always will i just feel that at this particular time in my career i've reached the pinnacle of my career after a three-peat michael jordan may have felt like he'd reached perfection and was no longer challenged but for the rest of the league it was the first time in a while that things had felt wide open and we were all curious who was going to win the next NBA championship. In April of 94, right as NBA playoff seating was taking shape, the music world was hit with this tragedy. Kurt Cobain, the leader of one of rock's most gifted and promising bands, Nirvana, is dead, and this is the story as we know it so far. Cobain's body was found in a house in Seattle on Friday morning. He was dead of an apparently self-inflicted shotgun blast to the head. Police found what is said to be a suicide note at the scene, but have not yet divulged its contents. I had discovered Nirvana while in middle school, and if it's hitting the radar of a middle schooler in Pensacola, Florida, I don't think it really can be considered underground. But the album Nevermind led me to their first album, Bleach, which was released on Sub Pop Records. 
And for me, Sub Pop was the ultimate resource for discovering other music. Some examples of bands that had worked with Sub Pop at the time were Sunny Day Real Estate, Sonic Youth, The Afghan Wigs, Sebado, Mud Honey, Seaweed, Dinosaur Jr., Fugazi, the list goes on. Uh, it's widely regarded that Sub Pop owned what was called the Seattle Sound of the 90s. And beyond being on the other side of the country, Seattle might have been on the other side of the world. But there was one more thing that I knew about Seattle. It was home to the NBA's Seattle Supersonics, and they had a dynamic duo. Point guard Gary Payton, also known as the glove because he smothered you with his defense like a glove, and his partner was Sean Kemp, an extremely athletic, high-flying power forward who was otherwise known as Rain Man. In that 93-94 regular season, the Seattle Supersonics were the team that rose to the occasion. They secured the best record in the league, giving them the number one seed overall. However, with that came what's still considered to be the biggest upset in NBA playoff history. The number one seed Supersonics lost to the eighth seed Denver Nuggets in the first round. And that's after being up 2-0 in a five-game series. In short, they only had to win one more game, but instead they lost three in a row. But that's more of a tangent. The reason I mention the Supersonics is because in that same spring of 94, a band named Oasis launched their very first single. Uh, and I went into music, kind of wanted me with a guitar. They walked past me with a guitar in the case. I'd hail abuse it and I'd go, weirdo. I'd go, weirdo. Weirdo. And then I'd have a football in me, because I was just into football. I was just a young lad, I didn't understand music. And as I got grown up, I started understanding his music a little bit. See, I didn't know that Oasis was from Manchester, England. And pre-internet, I'm not sure how the buzz of their new record and single hit me. During that time, the answer nine times out of ten would have been by watching MTV's 120 Minutes. The other one out of ten times would have been reading Rolling Stone at the grocery store. Which brings us to this episode, where I've enlisted the help of some friends to talk about that era of music, what they remember about that era of the NBA, and or their path to becoming a fan of the NBA.
It is an honor and a privilege to introduce our inaugural Ninth Seed guest, the ever-opinionated and ageless wonder that is Tony Farmer. Born in L.A. but residing in Brooklyn, New York, uh, thank you for coming on, Tony. Hey, man, my pleasure. I, always, I love talking about this shit. <laughs> Please tell us your memories of hearing Oasis for the first time in 1994. Uh, first time I heard Oasis, you know, I'd heard a bunch of hype about them. And then uh, a friend actually uh, popped a cassette in, in uh, I was driving and uh, he was like, oh, you got to listen to this. This is amazing. And I'd heard about it. So I was excited to hear it. And um, I remember just thinking, what the fuck is this? This is, this sounds like I could straight ahead rock. And I, it was, it was not what I was expecting at all, you know, especially being on creation. And I was, I was being a real indie rock snob at the time and, you know, I thought it was going to be like my bloody Valentine or, or ride and be, you know, shoegazy or, or whatever. And it was just like this sneering, straightforward rock and roll. And I was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I didn't dig it at all when I first heard it, honestly. Well, you obviously at some point grew into liking them. Man. Yeah, completely fucking hell. I was so wrong. Um, it, I, you know, it took, I, you know, I had another friend uh, a little, a couple months after that, I had a fr- another friend come back from, tour in 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 europe and and uh and gave me the cd and uh i just thought i I don't know what it was but i started trying i was like man i must be missing something so i started listening to it and and it just it took a little time it you know after a while i was like oh wait wait a minute this song is good and then oh fuck this song is good too and it grew and grew and then within about a year i went you know to quote them you know i went fucking mad for it i like yeah i I still think, you know, those first couple records and and the singles and B-sides are, it was a magic time. And that those songs stand up. I, I still fucking love them to death. And were you living in L.A. at the time? No, man. I actually, I left Los Angeles fairly early in, in 93. Uh, the company I was working for, I just started traveling a lot and was basically living in Houston, Texas through that stretch. So were you a Rockets fan uh, back then? No, man, I was a Lakers fan. I've always, I'm always a Lakers fan. But yeah, you know, the during those, I remember, the, I remember vividly those because I was in Houston. You know, I, I vividly remember those um, the playoff series with uh, with the with the with the Knicks, and uh, and I was I was rooting for New York. I don't know why. It's funny thinking back because I ended up living in New York, but. Um, for whatever reason, I think I had a certain disdain for Texas. It was as if I was sort of stuck there, um, which was silly. But um, no, I was rooting for the Knicks for sure.
I thought Oasis was going to be a band on sub pop paying homage to the Seattle Supersonics. And what I thought they would look and sound like uh, was Sunny Day Real Estate. Skinny college indie rockers uh, wearing long sleeve thrasher tees on 120 minutes. Um, but did you follow sub pop and did you listen to Sunny Day Real Estate back then? I didn't get it at all. No, I, I somehow skipped that one. And I was you know, real aware of sub pop and into a lot of those bands. And for whatever reason, man, I just, I guess you just, you can't, I was obsessed with other things at the time. And I, I did not, no one ever, you know, got in my car and put the cassette in. No one put them on a mixtape for me. No one, you know, it just, it was a, yeah, it was a record I looked at and went, hmm, nah, never went for it at the time, which, you know, I regret now because that fucking record is great. I love it now. That's kind of like what uh, Morrissey and the Smiths were to me at that time. I knew about them, but I don't know. Maybe they weren't on enough mixtapes or I just didn't pay them enough attention. And I, I kind of feel like I missed out on their prime. Shit. I think um, I think he put out great stuff in the early mid-90s. He was, at, I mean, your arsenal was, and Boxo were Apex records for him. And um, you know, I saw him on that Your Arsenal tour. And then after that, I mean, he did kind of go missing for a while. He didn't tour a whole lot. So it's not as if you, you really missed much a lot as far as gigs. But, you know, he put out a lot of good music. And, uh, I'm, yeah, at no point was I was I not listening to him. And I, that was a great time, I think, for me and, for me and Morrissey. And when <laughs> you slam down the hammer you see it in your heart up i'd like to introduce you to ezra martin he possesses three unique qualifications to be on ninth seed he's debatably the biggest morrissey fan that i know 
It's worth noting that his only competitor would be Tony Farmer. He grew up in New York City and played in a band and attended these shows as a teenager. Most importantly, he's a diehard New York Knicks fan. His wealth of music knowledge is only matched by his knowledge of New York Knicks history. I myself really didn't start listening to the Smiths until the early aughts. They were somewhere between The Cure and The Clash. I had classified it as 80s music that my older sisters listened to. But I feel as if I missed out on their prime years of music. Uh, What would you have to say about that, Ezra? Man, I'm sad to say I think you missed the prime. Um, You know, that early to mid-90s was was really just such a special time. he, you know, he had done his first U.S. tour in 91. Then he came back again in 92. Uh, and then there was a break. Um, you know, I'd seen him seven times. By, by the time Vauxhall and I came out, I'd seen him seven times. Um, and so Vauxhall comes out. Um, about a month later, he announces Carnegie Hall, um, which is just going to be epic. It had been two years since I'd seen him. You know, begged my parents for tickets, got tickets to both nights. You know, and then I had to experience what it's like. Another Morrissey tradition, uh, a canceled show, uh, canceled both shows, canceled the whole tour. In pre-internet, uh, how did you learn about that cancellation? Just like on the radio or something? Uh, you know, I don't remember. You know, that's a good, that's a great question. I don't remember. Probably the radio station, like the local college, my college radio station, probably. Um, and then he didn't come back until 97. And then... You know, some people would argue that by 97, you're already out of the prime years, like once you're in a maladjusted short hair time period. Well, that definitely makes me feel better. But how about the song Speedway? That song is just my friends and I have a have a conversation that, you know, that we bring up all the time. It's whether it's like name the best debut album or name the best album opener or name the best album closer of all time. To me, that album has the best album closer of all time on it and that's speedway um you know it's it's an amazing album um his new band members really clicked in like i wasn't expecting and you know from top to bottom it's a great album slide two is a little sleepier with like used to be a sweet boy and the lazy sunbathers etc and then like by the time you get to speedway and that the chainsaw kicks in and like you know you sort of bolt upright in your seat because you know something good is about to happen from that moment all the way to the end when there's that just that that break and then the driving the driving drum drum beat that ties the whole thing together and then you know with with uh, in my own sick way I'll always be true to you line at the end um, man I get chills to this day and I've, I've listened to that song in the in the hundreds of thousands of times I'd say I've uh, yeah I've actually listened to that song while operating a chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> That's no. very uh, Rhode Island of you. Yes, yes. Um, and then, what's it like? I mean, to let's say 2014, 20 years later, what's uh, a Morrissey show like uh, compared to what it was back then? It's you know, it's still great. It's still exciting. I, I I'll always go every time. Like I'm in the same city, and and he's playing. I'm going to go. Um, one of the things that's changed though is like, you know, when I was a kid and we're seeing these shows, Morsi always appeared like seven feet tall to me. Um, you know, whether I was in the rafters at MSG or in the pit at the Ritz looking up at him, he just larger than life. I don't know if it's the pompadour or, or the hair or the style, but he just looked at this 
huge presence about him. And then, you know, in 2000, I met him and it, it was, it was surreal. I was taller than him. Right. And like our hair, we both had less hair at that point. And there I was like shaking hands, looking down at Morrissey, um, you know, full respect, but looking down at him and, and it was just, it was surreal. And I, I take that with me now when I go to the shows that, you know, he's just a guy. Um, I, he's still a legend, but he is just a guy and he's normal height. He's not you um, and admittedly got into Sonic Youth uh, in middle school because of their music video for 100%, which was their song off Dirty. Uh, in that video, it, I think it was a high school party, and Spike Jones and Jason Lee are skateboarding throughout Los Angeles, and it's what I had dreamed my high school experience to be like. But their follow-up to that in uh, 94 was Experimental Jet Set Trash and No Star, and probably their best-known song off of that was the one they launched it with, which was uh, Bull in the Heather, which we just heard. Uh, do you remember much about that song or the album? The thing I really remember is back then, like, there would be a single would come out before the album. And, like, you would either it would either debut on the radio, or if you were like me and didn't really listen to the radio, it would debut on MTV. You'd see the video. I remember you know, watching 120 Minutes one night, they premiering the new Sonic Youth video and you know, look up at the screen and there's Kathleen Hanna. And it's just like, holy shit, Kathleen Hanna is on MTV in a Sonic Youth video. And, you know, being who she was and Riot Girls and, you know, that to me that spoke volumes about it was okay for Kathleen Hanna to be on the lead singer of Bikini Kill to be on MTV because of the, the cred 
and just the coolness that Sonic Youth exudes. Yeah, well, I guess it speaks to how legendary Kim Gordon is. I mean, she was the coolest female of that indie rock, grunge, noise music, however you want to try to classify Sonic Youth. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of folks like to attribute her or Joan Jett as, like, the first Riot Girl. You know, being into, like, the Riot Girl bands at that time, like Bikini Kill and Bratmobile and Tiger Trap, etc., it was just really something special for me to see to see those two together on screen. So you'll enjoy this, probably even remember this, but Sonic Youth didn't really tour that album because uh, she was pregnant with her and Thurston Moore's child, and they had a pregnancy and then turned into a newborn. So um, most people remember the David Leatherman performance uh, where she's wearing a John Starks jersey where she's six to seven months pregnant. But doing the research... She wore that jersey during the Eastern Conference Finals where the Knicks were going up against the Bulls. That was such an epic time. Um, you know, the, the Bulls and the Pacers you know, were the, the Knicks' arch rivals. And getting past them was like almost like our own finals. Even though we lost to the Rockets, um, you know, one of the things that makes it less painful is that we, we got there by going through those two teams. Oh, 100%. I mean, it was a measure of who was going to do what once Jordan was out of the league. And of course, first, who was going to win the Eastern Conference and then who was going to win the NBA Finals. Yeah. And I mean, a lot like Sonic Youth, the Knicks were, you know, Sonic Youth wasn't necessarily, they weren't born in New York or necessarily from New York, but they were New Yorkers and they were rooting for the Knicks like everyone else. And the Knicks, you look at the personalities on that team, Derek Harper, John Starks, Charles Oakley, list goes on. They're not from New York, but they're New Yorkers. And the whole city just rallied behind the, uh, rallied behind that whole team um, that season. It was, it was really special. All right, good stuff. Well, I kind of already know the answer to this question, but did you listen to the Afghan wigs much? You know, I'm not a big Afghan wigs guy. Um, Just never got into them or didn't like them? Never got into them. I wouldn't say I I disliked them. I just never got into them. They're a little too, uh, I don't know, maybe a little too rock and roll for me. Well, my favorite uh, Afghan wig song is My Curse, uh, which was off the album Gentleman where the lead singer uh, refused to sing it because it was about a breakup and it was really emotional for him. Uh, Marcy Mays, uh, also from Columbus, Ohio, where the Afghan wigs are from, uh, sang the track on the album. Uh, Even though she wasn't considered a riot girl, she did a way better job than Greg Dooley did singing the song. Uh, So keeping in theme of how empowering Kim Gordon is, I wanted to feature this song and also because it's one of my favorites. Uh, on the website, I have the version of Greg Dooley singing it live at an, and another of uh, Marcy May singing it. So check it out. Judge for yourself.
I'd like to welcome Ben Colon to Ninth Seed, photographer extraordinaire, a legend within skateboard photography. Honestly, my favorite guy to bullshit with about basketball while I'm on a shoot. He's also a Celtic fan that lives in Los Angeles. But first off, I have to ask you, uh, were you ever an Afghan Wigs fan? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. But um, no, no, they're just like a band that I, for some reason, just kind of missed. I, I never um, ended up really listening to them, even though I know they're supposed to be really good. And I actually should probably check them out at some point. That's actually a common response amongst my friends. I guess it's kind of like being an Orlando Magic fan. But um, the reason, well, one of the reasons I have you on this podcast is because you're a Boston Celtics fan. How did uh, you become a Boston Celtics fan? I started watching probably like 98, 99. I was living in Boston and uh, I had grown up, I grew up on Long Island and I was never into sports really as a kid at all. And um, being a skateboarder, like I guess in that era too, I kind of had like a pretty like anti-sports thing at first, like, especially when I first moved to Boston, but, um, I kind of like slowly started getting into it and paying a little attention, I guess. And then I think, um, when, uh, when I moved to LA in 2002, I think just sort of like missing home and kind of not really digging LA at first. And then also, I guess just being surrounded by all the like, laker flags and all that shit at that point i like really sort of like embraced um the teams back home just like as a sort of like connection to boston and everything and i we got like league pass that year and i had a lot of i definitely had a lot of free time at that point so i I ended up watching kind of like a lot of games um and i remember going to see the see the celtics play the lakers that year at staples and uh they definitely were not good and you know, got beat and I had to walk out listening to it and stuff, which was pretty annoying. But, um, that's probably when I got the most into like when I really started getting into it heavy. And so how do you feel about Rondo being on the Lakers now? Um, I hate it and I think it's pretty gross. I, uh, I'm like still, you know, I'm still a huge Rondo fan for sure. Just from back when he was on the Celtics and like in my head, he's kind of, even though he got traded a long time ago and he's already played for like, multiple other teams he's just like i'm always a fan of that dude for sure
So the other reason I have you on is because you are a massive pavement fan. Uh, can you tell us about how you got into them? Um, so when I was in 11th grade, I started working at this record store. I worked there for, I guess, part of 11th and um, 12th grade. And uh, I worked with these two like older dudes um, who were like sort of ex-football player dudes. They, they would just like sit around and drink and everything. And they, they um, had just awesome musical taste. And they, they kind of introduced me to tons of good stuff. But uh, they they were big pavement fans just from the beginning, like, they had you know like the seven inches and all that stuff before anything came out and so when slanted and shannon came out they had that like pre-ordered and ready to go and um played that for me then and i was pretty much immediately into into them after that so on the podcast i played in the mouth of desert which was on slanted enchanted that came out in 92 in 1994, the year in question, uh, they released Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, which had the hit single uh, Cut Your Hair, which was pretty poppy. But it's another one of those examples where I heard one album and it led me to an older album. Uh, what do you remember about Slanted and Enchanted? Uh, well, Slanted, obviously, like, you know, I heard that first because it came out first and I thought it was really rad. Um, like, I liked it. It's a great album. And I feel like a lot of people think that's like, you know, that's the best pavement thing or whatever. But like to me, when Watery Domestic came out, which I think only came out maybe like a year later or something, I would that that's like my probably my favorite pavement like thing they ever came out with. And I just felt like it was just like four songs and every one of them was awesome. And it was just like perfect from start to finish like that. To me, that's like the ultimate pavement um, like recording. And I didn't even know that yeah i didn't know that that stuff had sort of been like mixed up and thrown in with the uh the the anniversary you know version so pavement was on matador which arguably was the east coast equivalent of sub pop but uh i would say the sub pop uh, equivalent of pavement was sebado uh, did you ever listen to sebado much yeah no i was definitely really into them and i um I, they were they were like in I guess kind of the or like mid nineties or something, there were a band I was like really listening to a lot. Um, I think it's funny cause I, I feel like, you know, Lou Barlow, like coming from dinosaur junior and everything. Uh, I feel like a lot of people would, you know, think of dinosaur junior as being like the, the band or whatever. But I know like back then I listened to them sort of a lot more than I listened to dinosaur junior. I'm not attracted today, I'm not a psychos or eyes, I'm not an Adam or Eve, I'm just a nervous old thing. Hear my voice swing as I sing, my will will bend and then break, the cradle break and I fall, I couldn't help it at all, I've got a license to Here I am and I've been I only need a few friends 
I'd like to introduce my longtime friend, Christine Orlandi, coming to us from Portland, Oregon. Welcome to Ninth Seed, Christine. Thanks for having me, Miss. All right, to get things started, let's, uh, well, tell us about your path to becoming an NBA fan. I grew up on Long Island, and my dad was a huge Knicks fan. And then in the early 90s, we moved to South Florida when the Heat first came onto the scene. And we used to go to Heat games all the time. And then later on, 10 years ago, when I moved to Portland, I started going to games all the time with friends. And I just fell in love with the energy of the Portland fan base. I'd have to agree with you on that. Cool town, cool fan base. Did you know that Doug Marsh, uh, lead singer of Built to Spill, uh, is a massive Trailblazers fan, and do you see him around town much? I knew Doug Marsh was a big fan uh, based on him like wearing jerseys and stuff like that, but uh, he plays a lot of shows here. Uh, Built to Spill plays pretty often, so that's definitely um, a highlight, but I don't see him around town very often. Get the car, I'll get the night. Off you'll get the chance to take the world apart and figure out how it works. Don't let me know what you find out. I need a car, you need a guide who needs a map. If I don't die or worse, I'm gonna need I'll be asleep when you get back. I want to see it when you find out what common stars and moons are all about. want to see their faces turn to backs of heads and slowly get smaller. want to see it now. want to see So not only a reason, but the main reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is because you are a member of a fantasy basketball league. Can you tell us about how you got started with that? A bunch of us uh, hang out at this uh, bar here in Portland, the Bye and Bye, and everybody that worked there formed a league one year, and then we just kind of, you know, jumped into it, and it grew from eight people to 10 people to 12 and it's a lot of fun. We play a daily league. We all talk shit and constantly keep tabs on what's happening in the NBA. And it's it's a blast. 
Sorry to be indie rock fanning out, but we're both mutual Steve Malcolmist, lead singer of Pavement fans, and he's a Trailblazers fan that lives in Portland. Please tell me uh, you run into him every now and then. Um, not often, but I did run into Steve Malcolmist last year at Salt and Straw with his family, and unfortunately, I didn't feel like that was an opportune moment to introduce myself and tell him how much uh, he meant to me, but uh, he is seen often around town. If you see him again, you should ask him to join your fantasy league. Absolutely. I think he'd have a blast. All right. I got a question for you. Do you have any Lakers on your fantasy team this year? Um, I do not have any Lakers on my team at the moment. Is that an anti-LeBron thing or an anti-Lakers thing? Um, I'm excited for the Lakers. I love LeBron. Um, I love him, you know, when he is in Cleveland. I love him when he's in Miami. I think it's great for the Lakers. I think it's going to bring a different level of sportsmanship to that team. And I'm excited to see what they do. It's definitely going to be exciting to watch. Um, Can you tell us about how or if being involved in fantasy has grown your interest or passion for the NBA? Oh, for sure. I don't think I would follow it nearly as closely as I do if I didn't have to be responsible for my team every day. Um, it's super fun and competitive, and it's made me really fall in love with the NBA even more. All right. Well, I got to tell people how we met. Uh, Christine and I both worked at the Surf Station Surf Shop in St. Augustine, Florida, uh, while going to college. And I would you mind sharing with the listeners what we were listening to on our six disc CD changer, our player at the shop? We definitely listened to uh, Built a Spill for sure, lots of Modest Mouse, and uh, we definitely listened to lots of shitty music. Um, you know, some No Effects, some Pennywise sometimes. And then uh, Moose's favorite, we definitely were on a Frank Black kick for for a while. Yeah, that was right around the time uh, he was going from being Frank Black, the Teenager of the Year album, to Frank Black and the Catholics. But the reason I listened to Teenager of the Year so much is because it was featured in Lost's video On the Road with Spike. Do you remember or would you say we got much music from surf videos back then? Uh, definitely. Um, I think that a lot of those surf videos for every bad song that might have been in there, which, you know, is kind of a guilty pleasure thing. Um, they definitely were ahead of their time when it came to some other, you know, other music for sure. Let me first come out and say I'm not a Lakers fan, but I do think they will be an interesting team to watch this season. And the reason I mentioned them is because I see a parallel between LeBron and Frank Black, uh, LeBron left a team that went to the finals four years in a row, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and Frank Black left the Pixies. And the Lakers, they might might not make the playoffs this year in their first year of the LeBron era, but when Frank Black left the Pixies, his first self-titled solo album was good, but it felt safe. And for the Lakers, next season, I think, with free agency, they can make a huge jump And equally, Frank Black's second album, Teenager of the Year, to me was a true expression of creative freedom. And creative freedom is why I think LeBron left Cleveland to go to a team that might not make the playoffs. You have 
Massive thank you to Tony Farmer, Ezra Martin, Ben Colin, and Christine Orlandi for allowing me to stumble through this episode. If you go to ninthseed.com under episode two, we have every audio clip posted that we used in this episode. We also have some extra ones. Additionally, we have a link to a Spotify playlist with all of the songs featured in this episode in their entirety. Thank you for joining us. In the next episode, we'll be crossing the pond and heading over to Barcelona, Spain where we will discuss the 1992 USA Olympic Dream Team, skateboarding in the early aughts, Galician big man Fran Vazquez, El Clásico de Basquetbol, and last but not least, our favorite places to get tapas in Barcelona. Remember, you can listen to Ninth Seed on Anchor.fm, the easiest way to podcast ever, or wherever else you get your podcasts.